that you would equip us for the work of the ministry. In Jesus' name. So if you're in your Bibles at Mark chapter 9, we'll start in verse 30. It says, Then they departed from there, and I'll get to where they departed from. They departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And then he came to Capernaum. So last week we looked at, or two weeks ago, uh, actually uh, Ezra taught for me last week from Jeremiah 17. But two weeks ago in Mark, we were at this point where Jesus had taken three disciples up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. When he got up there, he was shown in all of his glory. All of a sudden, this earthly shell that he had taken on, uh, being fully God and yet taking the form of man, he, uh, he, he was born as an infant and he grew up. And at the same time, he was fully God. And that just completely blows me away because many people see it as miraculous that God in the flesh came down here and, and then he was transfigured on the mount. But the, really the miraculous part is that during the rest of his earthly ministry, we don't see that glory shine forth from him. He's just this common everyday guy walking with these disciples and the disciples that he chose, they weren't even people that you and I would probably pick if we were going to have a kickball team. They were a bunch of guys that didn't get along. They were fishermen. They stunk. They smelled like fish. And uh, many of them, even one of them was a zealot. He was a political guy that, you know, he was, he was the kind of guy where if you didn't agree with his politics, he might, you know, kind of take you to a back alley and beat you up. And so these guys weren't guys that you would pick to hang out with. And yet the Son of God decided that he would pick these 12 to show himself to. And Scripture tells us that Jesus himself was the full embodiment of the love that God has for his creation, for his people. And so Jesus, while he's walking, he isn't just some other guy, but he looks like one. He's like you and I. And so he took on this body that could accept infirmities and he could get sick. Although I don't know, I've never read in scripture that when he got sick, if he did get sick, he never told anybody about it. He didn't complain. <laughs> he knew his purpose was to come here and to redeem mankind. And so Jesus... While he's coming off the Mount of Transfiguration, he comes down and his other nine disciples are there. Peter, James, and John were with him. They were kind of on the high horse. They were up on the mountain getting to see God's glory. And yet the other nine were down at the bottom of the mountain with all the people that still had tons of problems that they were dealing with. One guy in particular that Mark highlights came to the disciples because he knew that they were with Jesus at some point. They knew Jesus had the power to heal. And so he came to his disciples and he said, disciples, I don't know which ones he talked to. He said, I know you guys were with Jesus and my son has been an epileptic from birth. He's got this, this real big trial and he, this, this demon that he seems to have seems to throw him into fires and even throw him into the water to try to kill him. And that's what Satan always does when he has control over a life. He tries to take that life and not just make it lesser than, but to destroy it, to, to destroy it and steal every part of that life. And so this demon, it seems, was taking over this boy's life and trying to kill him. And his father watched him, saw him. It looked like he was moonstruck. We talked about that, like a 
the modern day word would be a lunatic, but in those days it meant that they were just stared at the moon for too long, so they were crazy. So what Jesus did was when he came off the mountain, he saw that the Pharisees were disputing with his disciples. And, you know, they were, they were latching on. They were saying, hey, how come your disciples can't heal this guy? See, you're not really the Messiah. So Jesus walks up while this is going on. They're arguing with the disciples. The Pharisees are. And Jesus says, what are you talking with them about? He's upset. He says, why are you conversing with these people? These are my disciples. What do you, how, stop messing with them. And so when he walks up, he does that. And so the man turns around and says, I came to your disciples asking them to heal my son, but they could not. And so he looks at them and he says, how, much, how long must I suffer with this faithless generation? And he turns around and he says, and he cast the demon out of this man's son. So when he does that, the disciples afterwards, they walk up to him. And they go, why, are, why weren't we able to cast the demon out of that boy? And Jesus looks at them. He just he doesn't pull any punches. He just says, this type of demon can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. He was showing them that they they were trying to just say words and cast out the demon. And what Jesus did was he spent all his time, his free time with the father. He relied completely on the strength of God, not on his own strength, which is funny to me because he is the son of God. He is God in himself. And so if the Son of God needs to rely upon God the Father through prayer and fasting, how much more, if we're the children of God, do we need to rely upon not our own strength, but the strength of the Father? So I tell you all that because it's right after that instance that we start today's passage as he's coming down from Mount Hermon and they're leaving this area where the boy was healed. Um, And actually, if you would pull up the map, please, Ezra, you'll see a map of Israel here. And that, I don't know if you guys can read it from there, there in the back, but that very top yellow circle sun-looking thing, that's Mount Hermon. And right south of it, the next one is Caesarea Philippi. And then if you go down the next splotch there, there's kind of two dots so close together that they'll overlap each other. One is Bethsaida to the east, and then to the west there a little bit is Capernaum. That's where he walks from Mount Hermon down to Caesarea Philippi down to Capernaum. Now, why is that important? Why am I showing you a map of Israel? It will be basically because what it says here today is they departed from there, from Mount Hermon, and they went south. And as they went south, he had all this time with his disciples to listen to them have conversation. And the interesting thing to me is is that oftentimes in our lives, what we do when we have a long trip is we put in the earbuds or we turn on the TV Or if we have this long section of our life where we seemingly we're kind of bored, oftentimes what we do is we kind of jam something in our ears and we listen to it rather than listening to those that are around us. And what we're going to find today is that Jesus listened to the conversation of his disciples, not just because he wanted to eavesdrop on them. He was their shepherd. They decided that they were going to follow him. And part of following Jesus is that we're accountable to him. And so his disciples are are talking along the way. And of course, they're having conversations like disciples would, right? They're they're all interested in what, you know, the way that Jesus is ministering and how cool it was that he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And what did he mean by certain things? No, he actually asked them a question here. Verse 33 says, when he was in the house, they arrived at Capernaum. This was the place that they'd met many times. This is where their headquarters was. Many believe that this was actually Peter's 
mother-in-law's house that they joined and, and talked at. And when, when they arrived at the house, Jesus asked them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? In other words, what were you guys arguing about? Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I had more than one kid or if I had a youth group in my car, I wouldn't say, hey, what were you guys discussing? What were you guys arguing about on the way? I'd ask them right then. But Jesus kind of waits until they get back and they can all have the conversation together. And he asked them, what were you disputing about on the road? And verse 34 says, they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. They weren't concerned with what Jesus had just done. They were concerned with how cool they were going to be in the kingdom of God. Remember, he's teaching about the kingdom of God and that it's going to come and that his disciples will be the ones that rule and reign with him. There's all these conversations going on. And so they're sitting there going, oh, cool. We're walking with you right now. So when your kingdom comes, we got first dibs. We got dibs. I call seat back, you know, and even James and John, their mom at one point comes up to Jesus and says, hey, um, can you let my sons sit at your right and your left hand when your kingdom comes? So they didn't even ask Jesus, hey, can I, can I you know, be your second in command? They had their mom ask. You know? But he asked them that question. What were you guys arguing about? And they all kept silent. Nobody answers. It seems like they were a little bit embarrassed at the fact that they'd even been discussing it. Otherwise, if they really wanted to know who was going to sit at, at Jesus' right hand and his left hand, Surely they should have just asked him. Why don't they just ask him? Well, it seems that they know that that's not the important part, but they all decided that they would have a neat little discussion about it. So, they still haven't gathered what Jesus is trying to teach them about being a representative of God on earth. It seems that as they're walking and as they're discussing things amongst themselves, in this case, they're arguing about their possible positions. Um, Jesus knows all the time what they're discussing. He's not asking them what they're discussing so he can know. God is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows what goes on that nobody else knows what goes on in your life. That's how God works. I don't know how he does it. I just know that he does. He's Lord over all creation. But what I want to say is that he knows what they're, what they're talking about, and so he stops and he asks them because he wonders if they really considered what they're sitting there arguing about. Are they arguing about something that really even matters? Because his desire for them as disciples is not so much to desire to have a position or to start a kingdom of their own. His desire for them as disciples is the same desire that he has for you and I as disciples to go and make disciples. We haven't been blessed to be a son or a daughter of God so that we can just hold it to ourselves. We've been blessed. We've been bought with a price. We're no longer our own so that we can be a blessing, so that we can be fruitful, not for our own desires, not for our own little kingdoms, but for God's kingdom. And so what, what I wanted to point out as we kind of come to this point where we're six months down the road, we started a church and we're having Bible studies and I wanted to point out the fact that Jesus, as a discipler, was not so much about having church. Church is good. It's why we gather. We have fellowship. But the point was, is he, church is about living life amongst people that are other, other Christians. And as we have fellowship with other Christians, what we find out is, as we live life with each other, we have this family that goes way beyond our blood family. 
We have this group of people that we can grow with together. What do we grow in? We grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as you all know, even with earthly families, as you get closer together, there's these, this rubbing that happens in between individuals. We don't always get along. But the point is, is that God was building this kingdom and He was showing through His actions with His disciples, He was calling them to something greater than kingdom building on earth. He was calling them to watch over one another. And he was calling them to be submitted to God himself. And as he called them to that, he called them out on stuff when he had wrong ideas about who Jesus was. He listened to people. He said, that's neat, but that's not why I came. To the Pharisees, he, t- he told them over and over again, I'm the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And they, they, they thought he was just some guy that came along. He was a blasphemer. But to the disciples, he showed them that he was a shepherd that he came to watch over them, that he, and that he continues to do that. So in this section that we're getting ready to start, in Mark chapter 9, verse 33, through chapter 10, verse 45, it's him sitting there discussing things with his disciples. His ministry with the crowds is kind of over now. He's no longer going out and doing these massive healings. He's, he's more about preparing the disciples so that once he is, in fact, what he just told them, crucified, They will kill him. At that point, once he's killed, he doesn't want it to stop. He's starting a kingdom. He's not finishing it. And so as he's starting this kingdom, he's taking these disciples and he's commissioning them to go out and do the work that he has started. But he doesn't just tell them with mere words. He tells them with his life. And what I want to tell you guys is that I'm not coming down here to fix people's problems. And I'm not coming down here to be everybody's end-all, be-all. I'm coming down here to do my part in God's kingdom, and He's called me to teach the Bible. And as I teach the Bible, I'm hoping that through what I'm learning from the Lord, that maybe you can kind of grasp, grasp some of the things that God's teaching me and be spurred on to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord yourselves. To point to the Lord and show you that He's being faithful in my life is just a way that I can say, hey, God's going to bring you through what you're going through. And God desires to teach you just like he teaches me every week. And I'm learning so many things, especially with the little girl now. I'm up a lot of hours of the night and I'm sitting there going, Lord, I don't want to be up right now. But maybe it is you want to use even this time to teach me some things when I'm not sleeping. And so it made me think of the fact that Jesus really, he's just here getting ready to teach them the heart of a disciple. They've just said, hey, we want to be the greatest in the kingdom by saying, I wonder who's going to be number one. Well, Jesus is number one if they just remember what they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. But verse 35 says, he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, here's the thing. If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and he shall be servant of all. These disciples want to know who will be greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus speaks directly to them. He tells them. This is his answer. If anyone desires to be first, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you shall be the last of all. You shall be the servant of all. Somebody told me probably three or four years ago. They said, if you want to have true joy in the Lord, just use this little acronym, joy. Jesus first, others second, yourself last. So if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, not an earthly kingdom, if you want to be the greatest in an earthly kingdom, make sure you put yourself first. Make sure your priorities are all you. Make sure you build your kingdom. You step on people on the way up. 
But if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, what you have to do is you have to be the servant of all. And Jesus tells them this while he is being the servant of all. Because remember, he's getting ready to literally give up his entire life so that others may have life abundant, so that he could die, be buried, die for the sins of the world, so that all others could be raised up in newness of life in the resurrection. He raises up in the resurrection as the firstborn of all who ever died. And when he dies, he was sinless, and so his sinless body being put to death was the payment for you and I, so that we could not only be forgiven our sins, but we could have our way paid to be in the kingdom of God, washed completely clean. So as he's talking to them about being a servant and laying down their lives, it made me think of Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. I'll just read it to you, and if you can't get there quick enough, just write down the reference. And, uh, but I think it's interesting because this is the mind of Christ. Philippians 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. This is what Paul wrote to the Philippians. He said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant, which was a slave in that day, and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, we talked about that, he had an earthly body, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So what I want to make a point of here is that he was in the form of God, but he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. So number one step is he made himself of no reputation. He left heaven. It would be like you and I having this mansion, except, you know, this is not really a good example, but this is the best thing I could think of. Having a mansion where it has McDonald's, it has a shopping mall in it, everything we would ever need, we're the most comfortable we could possibly be. All the things that you think that you need every day, you have them available to you. It's right there. You don't even have to pay anything for it. And you deciding, you know what? I'm going to leave that place, and I'm going to move to the slums in a third world country, and I'm going to minister to people because I care. Most of us wouldn't do that. It's the love of God that compels people to do that. Jesus here made himself of no reputation. He left heaven. But here's another thing. After he left heaven, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. So he didn't just leave heaven. He left heaven, and then he gave what life that he took up when he came down here, which was not very good compared to heaven. He took that life, the one life he was given by God, and he gave it up in death. Even the death of the cross, which was the worst way to be killed back in those days. It was literally, the whole point was that you would be tortured to death. Therefore, the result of that, God also has highly exalted him. He's lifted him up. Given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His humility, his making himself of no reputation, and then being obedient to the point of death meant that he was raised up by God, and he was exalted above, his name is exalted above every other name. This is intriguing to me because Jesus was just laying the groundwork as an example to leave his followers with. His disciples needed to get this thing more than anything else. So that later, when he clearly gave the great commission, which many have heard, which many Christians have heard it, 
They know what it says, and maybe they've even memorized it. But it seems to me that many Christians have a wrong idea about what Jesus meant when he commanded this in Matthew 28. The Great Commission says, Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20, Jesus came and he spoke to them, and he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So first of all, he said, All authority has been given to me. God gave him all the authority on heaven and on earth. So as a result of that, he says, Therefore, in light of that truth, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So what he says is he says, Go therefore and make disciples. But many people read this and they go, Make disciples of all nations. That's, that's for missionaries. That's for people that are called to be pastors. That's for missionaries that go to foreign countries and share the gospel. But what I wanted to tell you is that this is for all of us. This isn't just for pastors. This isn't just for missionaries. This is for everyone. Every person that calls on the name of Jesus Christ and says that they're a disciple, he commands them here. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That phrase that says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, actually, literally translated says, as you are going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. As you are going. That tells me that when I go to the gas company on Tuesday, because I have tomorrow off, I go to the gas company and I say, hey, I'm at the gas company. I'm here to be an engineer. It's true. But I'm also an engineer that knows Jesus. And so I'm an ambassador for Jesus Christ there at the gas company. And so it makes me think um, that Jesus was into way more than just sending out missionaries. Each one of us are missionaries. And uh, what, the reason I bring that up is because I think oftentimes we have this idea that if someone works for a church or if somebody is called to ministry, that means that's what they're supposed to go is, do is go make disciples. But here's another thing. Making disciples doesn't begin in the workplace. It doesn't begin in the church because that's where the disciples gather. It doesn't begin anywhere. It begins, first of all, at home. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I just had a little baby girl. And I was so convicted last night as I was reading through my notes and I'm reading this and I'm going, I'm supposed to go and make disciples. I'm not even praying over my daughter yet. It was convicting, right? So then it brought me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Well, first of all, let's read um, Mark 9, verse 36 and 37. That's where we'll end today. Verse 36 says, Then he took a little child, right after telling them, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you need to be a servant of all. Then he took a little child and he set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sends me, who sent me. So receiving little children, not just having them come to you, but whoever receives them. And the point I want to make about this is that he's telling them, if you really want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, not only must you be the servant of all, but you better take some time with these little children. The funny thing to me is that this is the same thing that God taught in the Old Testament to the children of Israel. This is one of the major marks that set them apart from the rest of the world. They didn't look at children and say, hey, look, I have an inheritance. 
They looked at children and said, man, these kids are noisy and I'm really busy right now. Why don't you go over there and do this? But in Deuteronomy chapter 6, there's this great um, command, if you will, and it's in the second telling of the law. Basically, it's just a reminder to the nation of Israel, here's, here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to multiply yourselves. Deuteronomy 6, verse 1 through 7. It says, Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess. For us, we're not possessing land. We are possessing salvation in Jesus Christ. That's our greatest possession. I hope it is. You're crossing over into this land to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. He wanted them to multiply in their families. He wanted them to lead their children to Jesus Christ. So, therefore, hear, O Israel, this is was they called it the great Shema. It was something they would repeat because they needed to remember it. They, they forgot stuff easily. He says, therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful, excuse me, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Okay, so this is the greatest commandment that Jesus taught them. And then he said, love your neighbor as yourself, right? But then he says, these words which I command you today, all the words of the law, shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. All the time. God's word is not just for Sundays and Wednesdays. It's not even just for your quiet time if you have it in the morning. It's for all the time. It should be what makes us who we are. And so he told the children of Israel the same thing that he's telling his disciples. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you must become the servant of all. And the best way to become the servant of all is do exactly what he was doing with them, which was listening to what they were saying, realizing their wrong ideas about God and about himself, Jesus, and then correcting them. He says, you shall talk of them, the statutes, the commandments that God gave, specifically the ones that Jesus spoke of. You shall talk of them when you sit down in your house. In other words, when you sit down to a meal, maybe it's a word of prayer. Maybe it's a time just talking about scripture with your spouse or with your children. Maybe it's just talking about it with a friend that you have down the road. When you walk by the way, when you're walking down the road, this is what Jesus was doing. They were walking by the way. They were talking about what they thought about Jesus. And then he corrected them. He made sure they had a proper understanding. When you lie down and when you rise up, when you lie down, you know, Pray before you go to bed. You'll get the best sleep in the world. My wife and I talk about that all the time. We don't have any problem sleeping. Now, we do a little bit now. There's a screaming child. But, but we don't have any problem sleeping because we talk with the Lord before we go to bed. And then when you rise up in the morning, get, some, get your morning java, but maybe you know, get some Jesus in there. Get some time with the Lord. Eat from his word. And I guess I bring all this up because I think about long car rides and I think about the conversations that we have. And I think about this life and how oftentimes we think it's so long. And yet if you look back, I hear lots of people when they're young say, is this day ever going to end? And I think we do that day in and day out. But if you think about it, you look back on your life, you go, where did it go? It was like a glimpse. It was, a, it was just quick. So 
what I wanted to say is this life may seem like a really long walk like these disciples are on. Some days it may even seem like a really long crawl if you're going through a really hard time. But the reality is that whether it seems like it's taking long or not, God is using this seemingly long season in your life in order, in order to give you the time with those who are closest to you. He's giving you this time to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all things that Jesus commanded. And I say this, and then this morning I'm sitting in church and I'm listening to my pastor teach, and he brought up another passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 21. And this is really what we're called to. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, which, think about that, if you're in Christ here tonight, if you are in Christ, this is going to speak to you. That's all, that's as simple as it is. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now just take that in for a minute. That's pretty cool. It's a breath, fresh breath of air. If you're overwhelmed and you feel like God's not been, like you just got the separation from God, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. But then it says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling him, uh, the world to himself, not imputing or depositing their trespasses or their former works to them, And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation, his word, the law that he was talking about to the disciples and to the the Old Testament, to Israel. Now then, because of that, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So I guess the point of my message tonight is not so much anything new. It's a reminder of what we've been called to. Kelly and I feel called to be down in Arcadia Valley. Not just to start a church, not to be the greatest, but to be the servant of all. We want to see people come to Jesus Christ. We may not see them come in droves. We may not see a parade in the streets. That's fine. We're not looking for that. What we desire is to see people have one-on-one fellowship with each other, to have families that encourage one another in the Word, in prayer, in fellowship, through trials, through triumphs, and to be a part of the body of Christ, which is not a building. We know that. We don't even own a building. We just have this place that we gather. God provides for it every month. But as we gather, we can encourage one another to keep going, number one, and to number two, in everything, seek out what Jesus is trying to do. And so, on the other side, we're called to, as we leave the doors and go out into the world, be the ambassadors that God has called us to be, to be Christians, to be Christ-like. And as we are, listen to people, have conversations with people. And if you don't feel comfortable having those conversations about the Lord, get to know Jesus more and then go have those conversations. Listen to people's ideas about Jesus. You'd be amazed to hear what people think about Jesus and they think who He is. Most of them will never quote one verse of Scripture because they don't know it, but they think that they know Jesus. And we're here as salt and light to reveal to them, not so that they feel bad, but so that they'll see that they really don't know Jesus. Some of them will, but many people, most people do not. And so we can be that healing agent. We can be that balm, that uh, ointment that we can put on the wound that is the fall. 
people are fallen, and because of that, they're, they're caught up in sin. And so as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, our desire is to, to point them to Jesus and that they be free from their sin and be given an abundant life. Maybe not a rich life, maybe not a big kingdom for themselves, but an abundant life because they'll have joy and peace in Him. So that was my desire to share that tonight. And as we fellowship afterwards, I got cake because I just wanted to celebrate and say, God's done this in six months. We've been able to have services, worship the Lord every week. And then also God sold our house and those kind of things. And then the baby's here. I just felt like celebrating. So if you guys have time afterwards, I hope you can hang out, have cake, have coffee with us. Got some Hawaiian punch if you like that. Um, but we'll just worship the Lord by fellowshipping with one another. And hopefully we can get to know each other a little bit more and encourage each other. Because Kelly and I are on our way down here because we want to be in your lives. Not to be nosy, but just to share our lives with you guys as you share with us. And then we can go fishing and we can have fish fries and we can you know, meet at the park or whatever. But we can walk this life of faith together in the community and hopefully Arcadia Valley will have new converts, new people that will become disciples of Jesus.